Thank you, Josh. Help us to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. He has come to this world. We celebrate it, the birth of our Savior, and uh, we want to honor him through this experience as well. One of our traditions at December is to reflect upon the Advent candles, and they are here, four of them. They represent the 400 years from Malachi, about 400 B.C., to the coming of Christ in uh, uh, roughly 1 A.D. or so. And so it reflects the 400 years of waiting. And during that period of waiting, they had this wreath that is in a circle that shows sort of the eternal nature of God that is never-ending, and uh, He'll never give up on us. But it is also green because it reflects sort of the life of Christ as well, that there's vitality and knowing Him and living for Him. And then the four candles have symbols themselves. Uh, we looked at last week the candle of hope. And so there is the hope of the, all the messianic prophecies that Christ came to fulfill, both in our lifetime as well as into the future as well. And today we ignite the candle of peace because Christ came to bring peace to our world. We live in a world where there's not as much peace as we would all wish for. Yesterday, we, of course, remembered Pearl Harbor Day. We never know when the surprise attacks will come, certainly in a literal way. We also never know when the spiritual attacks will come, and uh, we want to examine that this morning. We're going to dive into the deep end and look at things that perhaps are new to some of us here this morning. So I encourage you to take a look at that because it is all about the war on Christmas. You have an outline that is in your bulletin. I encourage you to follow along. Not everything on that outline will we be able to cover to the detail that I would like to and would normally pursue. Uh, It is out of the book of Revelation, Revelation 12, that sometimes we have looked at here. I've taught Revelation the whole book on various occasions. encourage you to be a good student of God's Word. It's a hard book. There's difficult in understanding everything that's in there, but it was written for us. In fact, one of the songs we just sang, we could not have sung that song or had that truth had we not had the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so these are truths that we even worship around as well. In fact, let me just remind you, the book of Revelation, we think, sometimes think it's all about prophecy and things that don't really relate to me somewhere in the future. I can't really figure it out. If point of fact, one of the things I always like to... Uh, draw our attention to that in the book of Revelation, one half of the book is about worshiping Jesus Christ. So if you want to enrich your worship of Christ, learn what the Revelation says about worshiping Jesus both on earth as well as the worship that we'll have in heaven. And the other half is all about prophecy of future events that have yet to occur. So if you'd like to study those, we encourage you to take a deep dive into that wonderful book as it reveals to us how God's going to conclude this world. When Jesus Christ was being born, there was a lot of things going on that we didn't know. How many of you have seen the movie The Wizard of Oz? It's, uh, okay, yes, uh, it's a big, big movie, and so I'm going to have a spoiler alert if you've not seen The Wizard of Oz yet. Well, at the very end of the movie, Dorothy and her three friends come, and they finally get themselves to this Wizard of Oz, the Oz, this, this wizard that has this truth that will give to them everything that they've been seeking in their lives. Only the little doggy comes around and begins to pull back the curtain, and they realize it's just a guy that's standing behind there pretending to be this great wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And so we see that it was revealed that there was always no mystery to it. It was just simply a guy posing in this posture of a wizard of Oz. This morning, I'm going to pull back the curtain to be able to see the things that are going on 
when Jesus was being born. I'm going to pull back the curtain to show you some of the things that are going on today that much as the attack was against on the war of Christmas against Christ's birth, there is a war against you and me in terms of the new birth in Jesus Christ and the life that we would live for Him. So that's where we want to head this morning. A little background on angels that's on the outline there, but there are good angels, there are bad angels. Hopefully you understand that in this new series we call Hark because it's all about the angels' experience and what they did during the birth of Christ. And this morning we're going to look at sort of that behind the scenes. The good angels are there to worship Jesus Christ. The bad angels we call demons. The head of the demons is a person that we refer to in Revelation 12 as Satan or the devil. Uh, He is the accuser. He is the attacker. And there are two names of all the angels that we understand. The Bible only names two angels. There is the angel Gabriel, and that was the messenger angel that came and told Mary and told the various people that were surrounding Mary about the birth of the coming Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then there is the angel Michael. He is often sometimes referred to as the archangel. He is the most powerful of angels. And uh, Michael is one of those angels. In fact, if you read in Daniel chapter 12, you'll read that there Michael is actually a protector of the nation of Israel. He stood over Israel to be able to provide the kind of guard that they needed over the history of their lives. And there's no reason to believe that Michael is still not a protector of that nation as he continues to carry out his warrior role. He is a battler. He is a fighter. And we will see that. So I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 5. I'm going to read those verses. This is right smack dab in the middle of the book of Revelation because there is a war that is taking place. We need to understand the participants in the war and the events of the war. So I'm going to read Revelation chapter 12. And again, these are challenging verses. They just don't automatically understand, have meaning to us. But John writes in his revelation of Jesus, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. So you can see, obviously, it's referencing a woman or perhaps a nation that is in the process of crying out in the labor of giving birth. There is some other details in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and this is where this war begins to rage. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads. Each head represents a power or a system and ten horns reflecting authority. And on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. The stars of heaven is another reference to angels. Somewhere in the past history of the world, in a period of time that we don't really know. Lucifer, who then became Satan, swept away a third of the stars or a third of the angels that God had created and created this force of power, this spiritual force of power that today we refer to as demons. Satan is an angel that fell in sin and then he swept away a third of all other angels to be part of his really system of destroying everything that God would do today in our lives as well, as I'll show you. So his tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and threw them to the earth. And so they are scattered throughout the earth. That's why when Jesus walked the earth, you read many stories of accounts of demonic behavior and their possession of people. And the dragon stood before the woman, and here is this war of the birth of Jesus. 
and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. That is not what you call silent night, holy night. All is calm. This is a time of great war that is taking place that Satan, formerly Lucifer, in heaven being created by Jesus himself, knew that this day would come as it was prophesied way back in Genesis, and then here it is being fulfilled. And so he is there to do everything he can to stop God from giving birth through Mary of the baby Jesus that he would be the Messiah who would die on the cross to pay for our sins. So he begins early on in her pregnancy that he would devour this child. But she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and this references his ascension to heaven. So those details there we won't be able to get into, but let me again lay out the land of the landscape of the people and the participants in this war. There is the woman. It is usually referred to as the nation of Israel, but specifically it's probably Mary who is giving birth to this child. And there is the dragon who is the evil angel who is Satan, and that's referenced in Revelation 12, 9 that identifies the dragon as Satan himself. And then there is the man-child who is referred to as Jesus Christ. And the events of this thing, this is the dragon. This is the some artist characterization of the dragon of what Satan looks like. Satan doesn't want us to see what he really looks like. So if Satan came and tempted us and he looked like that, we'd say, we want nothing to do with you. So Satan, we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, loves to disguise himself as an angel of light. He wants to look good to us, and I'll illustrate that in a moment. Here are some of the events. Israel is specifically referring to Mary as about to give birth. And the last thing that Satan wants to occur is to allow Jesus to be born so he thinks he can destroy the little baby Jesus. So the evil angel, Satan himself, he stood over the birth of the scene of the, of the baby Jesus so that he might devour him, to destroy him. This is the war that is going on. God knew about this. God knows that there's still a war going on. And then finally we see this last scene of heaven. And that is the promise of Christ's rule that will be fulfilled because it says there in the text that she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And so that's the war at the birth of the baby Jesus. If you have a manger scene at home and you got the, the sheep, you got the baby Jesus, you got Mary, you got Joseph, you might have some shepherds, you might have some wise men who are working their way to it. One of the other things you should do is to hang a big ugly dragon on the top of it. And then you've got the full manger scene. Without the dragon, you don't have the full manger scene. And so this is what Revelation 12 is all about. Revelation 12 is pulling back the curtain on the evil that was raging behind the scenes of the unseen war that is here to destroy the baby Jesus and the unseen war that is frankly going to try to destroy you and me. Satan does not want us to succeed in anything that God has taught us. Let me show you the war that continues. There's an impact of this war that is being referenced later in this chapter. Let me read the text. I'll put it on the screen for you as well. And there was a war in heaven. Here's Michael. Michael the archangel, the most powerful angel that there is in heaven. 
that Michael, who comes along to assist other angels who are being wounded by demonic behavior they can't overcome. We see that in Daniel. So Michael is very powerful, and his angels were waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And so, Michael, can you imagine in heaven a war that is battling between good angels and evil angels, and there's God Almighty sitting on His righteous throne watching this war of the angels that He had created and watching Satan that He had originally created as Lucifer that you can read about in Ezekiel 28 that describes the way Lucifer was before he fell into his sin. So there's a description of that character of his life. And so watching Lucifer, now Satan, to do battle with his archangel Michael, the very powerful warrior angel, it's unbelievable. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. I highlight two words in this wonderful text. The first word is deceive. We looked at this. I preached here a couple of weeks ago. And if you were here, Lord willing, you remembered some of that. And one of the things that I preached about from Titus chapter 3 is that there is a fourfold progression of sin. It begins with a foolishness where I don't know that certain things are sin. Then it goes to disobedience where I know it's sin, but I do it anyways. But the third level of sin, the third degree of sin is deception. You are deceived. The word deceive is there as it is here in this text, and I think I put it on the outline for you as well, is the Greek word planeo, which we get the word planet from, and the idea of a planet is to orbit around something. Lord willing, the earth continues to orbit properly around the sun, but if you begin to orbit around the wrong thing, then you are deceived. If you begin to orbit around wrong values, the wrong systems of belief, wrong kinds of behaviors. You begin to revolve and evolve around those things. It feels like you're going in the right direction because you're doing something that feels productive, but in point of fact, you're evolving and revolving around the wrong thing, but you don't know it. That's the idea of deception. What Satan loves to do is to deceive us, to create this false impression that I'm doing okay, but in point of fact, there's a value system that I'm revolving around that is simply not godly not God-oriented, and we become deceived because we don't recognize. Deception is the inability to recognize what, is, what I'm doing is wrong, what I'm thinking is wrong. So this is Satan's tactic, and that what he loves to do is to accuse us. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser of the brethren day and night. When I hear words and thoughts in my mind, I wonder if there are satanic thoughts that God allows somehow to tempt me to disbelief in him, disbelief in who he is. When I get thoughts about David, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. You don't measure up. Someone else is better than you. When ideas of comparison and inequality and unfairness of life occurs, and I begin to have the system that God's not treating me properly, and I begin to have doubts about God because these words and these thoughts that begin to penetrate my heart that, that I feel less than I really want to feel. And I can't help but wonder if there are accusations that, God goes, that Satan goes before God and says, you know that servant of yours, Dave Mitchell? He really didn't have what it takes. And I want him to feel 
what it feels like to feel less than able in what you've called him to do and to be. Those accusations begin to burn in our souls until we reacquaint ourselves with what God says and know that those are not words that come from God himself, but from an evil one. And so this is a war that is going on. And it's sometimes hard to recognize the war of the enemy as he begins to belittle us. I love this quote of, um, that comes from this theologian, R.C. Ryle. We are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors. Saying, sin doesn't say this, I am your deadly enemy and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Satan will never say that to us. Sin won't. Oh, no. Sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss. The forbidden fruit seemed good and desirable to Eve, yet it cast her out of the Eden. Walking idly on his palace roof seemed harmless enough to David, yet it ended in adultery and murder. Sin rarely seems like sin at first, Let us then watch and pray, lest we fall into temptation. Sin disguises itself. It's a deception. It creates the sense that this is good, this is profitable. Eve, eat from the fruit. It's good and desirable to eat. It seems pleasant. It seems like the right thing to do. And so a reminder to me and to all of us of the deception of the evil one as he attacks us. So how do we overcome that? Let me unpack some things. There's three things that come in the later part of the text of this passage in Revelation 12. I'm going to jump to it for the sake of time. But in Revelation chapter 12, we find three things that these people did to overcome. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. These really strong believers that are referenced here in Revelation 12 that overcome the enemy, overcome this attack, overcome the warfare against them, They overcame him for three reasons. And reason number one is they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. What is that referencing? The blood of the Lamb is referencing maybe what Hebrews 10 talks about. Let us draw near with a sincere heart full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. I want my heart to be clean from an evil conscience. I want those things that are poisoning my heart and my life I want them gone. I want them cleaned up from the blood of the Lamb, from the Christ who died for me, who took my sins upon him on that cross, who shed his blood so that I don't have to shed my blood so that I can go to heaven and not have to sacrifice for my own sins. I let him be the sacrifice for my sins. And that is to take those things that are wrong and let God clean them out of my life. Now, I put on the back side, one of the things... I enjoy doing is to peruse through the scriptures and find those things that maybe are not obvious until you organize it all together in one list. So I've organized in one list those passages of scripture on the back side of the outline that you have here is sort of the front lines of attack of Satan and the demons. These are some very specific charges that scripture teaches us that are directly related to demonic behavior. Not every sin is directly related in Scripture at least, but these are. For example, I list them for you in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Marital discord, where there are marriage problems where temptation comes in. The passage says 
I just shortened it for the sake of, again, space and time. Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan knows that he likes to create weaknesses in marriages because when there is a weakness, there is the opportunity of temptation. There is a way to somehow confuse us into a behavior that we would otherwise never do but for the brokenness of my marriage and so it makes me susceptible. It makes me vulnerable to certain behaviors that God knows I, I don't want to do that. But Satan says, I've got you. That's one of my strategies of deception. Weaken the marriage to open the opportunity for other temptations. Unresolved anger is also directly related to satanic behavior. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Why is there an opportunity? The devil sees an opportunity when my emotional anger is totally out of control. It is unresolved. It is unforgiven. I won't release it. That kind of a prison of anger gives Satan an opportunity that otherwise would not be there. And that's directly related to satanic behavior, to my emotional, unresolved anger. An unforgiving spirit. Forgive so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. He loves to take people who say, I'm a forgiving person, but that person over there, what that person did to me, I will never, ever forgive them. And I think I'm holding them back. I think I'm punishing them in my mind because I won't forgive them. But Satan says, oh man, you're an easy target. I love to take apart people who have been hurt by other people and they refuse to forgive, but they hold a grudge. There's a spirit of vengeance. There's kind of an angry impulse every time we think about them. Satan says, you know, that's like a bullseye for me, going after him. And the rest, you can see lies. Satan is the father of lies, false teaching. 2 Corinthians 11, for such men are false apostles, deceitful works, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The inability to understand biblical truth is a major problem today. Satan is having a lot of victory in the area of disguising biblical truth, of creating distortions about biblical truth, of denying biblical truth of somehow skirting the issues that God says, but I've been saying this for thousands of years, and people are coming up with new ways to see biblical truth that is not biblical truth. And so there is a distortion of God's Word. The very last one I wanted to highlight as well, a refusal to believe that Jesus is the way of salvation. 2 Corinthians 4.4, again, in this case, the godless world, who is Satan, Satan is the godless world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John tells us, whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you've got family, you've got friends, the folks may be referenced in the Alpha video we just saw, and they just won't believe. What you do is you pray. You pray against the blindness that Satan has created in their hearts and their minds to simply not accept that Christ is a simple way for me to be redeemed, regenerated, revived, and given new life that can be with God forever. These are, these are the front lines of satanic behavior. And what the Scriptures are teaching us is that I, I bring all that before the blood of the Lamb, 
cleansing my conscience of those things, that I would not be entrapped by them. There's a second thing that we see here, our confidence in living boldly for Christ. The second thing it says, because. Why do they have overcoming? Because of the word of their testimony. Because they knew what they believed and they testified to it persistently and confidently. We see in in Hebrews again, therefore since we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I will not waver from my bold word of testimony. I will stay strong on that and I'll go before God with it. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That bold confidence of word of testimony that God is going to be there for me and I call upon Him and He blesses me with a provision that I otherwise would not have. And let me tell you a story to illustrate that. I wouldn't have believed this story except that it comes from an alumnus of my seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary. And so this other seminary alum tells a story of a medical missionary that came back to report about his ministry in a church in Michigan. He's a medical doctor, and he speaks of the time when he was serving in Africa of a little village. He had to ride his bicycle for two days to get to this village to be part of this medical hospital tending to the people who were sick. And what he would do is he'd ride his bicycle from a bigger city and get medicines and then takes two days to get there. He'd spend the night in the jungle and then the next day finish the course. So he would carry with him all this medicine and all the money. As he was making that trek one time, he came across a man who had been injured in a fight with another man. So he came and he ministered to him some medical uh, situation of need that was there and uh, then told him about Jesus Christ, that Christ loves him, wants to redeem him and all that. And uh, the man didn't really respond, so the medical doctor continued on his way. Two weeks later, as he made the same trek once again, he came back to that city to get more medicine, and this man that he had cared for came up to him and told him this, after you treated me, my friends and I followed you into the jungle because we knew that you have medicine and you have money, and we were planning to kill you in the middle of the night when we saw you sleeping there. As we snuck up upon you in this African jungle, we stopped because we saw 26 armed guards surrounding you. And so we thought, no way. Another day, maybe. So we left. And the medical doctor says, no, there weren't 26 guards. I've never had 26 guards. No, I saw it, and all my friends who were with us, we all saw them. So it turned us away. As this medical doctor was telling this to his home church in Michigan, right in the middle of that story, a man stood up and said, what day was that that you had this experience? He told him the day. He says, that that was the same day. It was morning here when it was nighttime there that I was putting my golf bags into my car to go play golf. And somehow God put it on my heart to pray for you. I was burdened for you. So he's saying this as he stood up in the middle of the congregation. He says, not only did I pray for you, but I called other men in our church that they would pray for you as well because I was so burdened for whatever was going on in your life. I didn't know what it was. He says, I would like to invite the other men to stand up who also prayed for you. And 26 men stood up. Right? 
Oh, we think, oh, it's just, you know. 26 men. Does God use our prayers? Does God allow us to come before him, the throne? Does God battle the enemies of this world? Elisha had the same thing as the Syrian army was surrounded by angelic forces. It's not a fairy tale story. It's not something God would never think to do. He did it in the Old Testament. There's no reason to think he couldn't do it today. And we could be like that medical doctor that we never realize the angelic power that protects you and me as we seek to do his will. And so these people overcame them by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame satanic behavior by the word of their testimony. Then they overcame him because they did not love their life even when faced with death. Our faithful and selfless life of sacrifice and perseverance is what overcomes the enemy who wants to destroy us with the sins I listed on the back and other things as well. He wants to take us out. He wants to devour us the way he devoured, wanted to devour the baby Jesus. These aren't just sort of made-up things. This is some fantasy world. We live, most of us, pretty normal days. But there is a war that Scripture teaches us about that makes us seriously consider the spiritual journey we're on so that we never become a victim of the kind of tactics and strategies and deception of Satan. Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's consistently and faithfully, diligently pursuing the wisdom of God in the fear of God, living our lives in righteous submission and humility to him. For he who promises is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let me finish with one more story to illustrate this. This is kind of where many of us can live. I was reading just this last week. There's a new book out that talks about um, Jim Gash, who is the president of Pepperdine University. Jim Gash and his wife, Jolene, uh, they live in Malibu. They're suffering for Jesus up there and all the hardships of that Malibu life. He's got a, he's got a, he's, he's the president of Pepperdine. He's got this big glass window that overlooks the Pacific Ocean. If you've been to Pepperdine, if you can't go to Biola, Pepperdine's okay, right? <laughs> and so they're up there suffering for Jesus in Malibu. And when Ken Starr was the president of Pepperdine, he was, I think he was a dean of the law school. So he's a lawyer and uh, serving diligently and just going about his daily living in Malibu, living the good life, right? And then he began to hear from people about the ministry needs and the unjust ways of Uganda. 2007, 2009, he heard stories about the unjust ways that people were being treated in Uganda. That sort of piqued his interest. And finally, in 2010, I think it was, he told his wife and his kids, you know, in fact, what he said, he said to himself this, I should go over there and help them. I'm a lawyer. I can help maybe bring some justice to the unjust ways of the unjust civil courts of those times and those places. So if I go over there, it, it'll look good to my wife and my kids that I'm really dedicated to Jesus, right? So that's what he's thinking, something like that. So he goes over there. And while he's over there, I think about 2010, 
he's touring around, and he goes to a little village uh, outside the capital city, and there's a prison there. And there's a young man by the name of Henry, and Henry is this young man that's right here after the story is told. You'll see that. Henry is there in that prison. He's five foot four, 120 pounds. He's just a kid. He's a teenage kid. He had been falsely accused of murder. Seems he and his brother and his dad were uh, caring for, they were shepherding some sheep, and there was a herdsman that was killed, and so they dropped the dead body in front of their house. So the police came and arrested the father and the two sons. So Henry sits in prison for something like 11 months waiting for his trial. And in his prison, there is no electricity, there is no water. And so Jim Gash says to himself, this is unjust. And God begins to stir his heart. So he goes to battle for Henry. He begins to seek through the legal system that is there. And what ends up taking place to fast forward is that his first entry into sort of being meekly and mildly dedicated by making a one-stop shop to Uganda turns out that after that, he and his wife and his three kids took a six-month sabbatical from Pepperdine and lived over there in Uganda as his wife carried on a medical mission, as he carried on legal ways to help these people. And as he helped these people, he finally got Henry out of that terrible jail and was able to have his whole case thrown out because it was so unfair and redeemed him out of that jail. Well, when Jim Gash went to that prison, he came to Henry the first time and told him, I'm going to get you out of here. And Henry's response was, Mr. Gash or Dr. Gash, I've been fasting and praying that someone would come and help me get out of this hellhole. And Dr. Gash realized he's the one to do it. And so he spends six months there, and Henry becomes part of their family. He lives with them as he got them out of jail. And he's gone back there on repeated occasions, time after time after time. And he says, this has been the calling of God. In fact, his wife describes it as she writes about it as well. It says, uh, Henry, and when he met Gash, was an answer to prayers. As I remember, I had actually fasted and prayed for somebody to come and do something, and I was just waiting. I was very happy to meet him. So they spent a six-month sabbatical. And it says, when we decided to move there, Henry became part of our family. Our kids instantly fell in love with him. And Jolene, his wife, became a second mom to him. The whole experience, Jolene Gash said, let their family step out in faith. Sometimes God needs to take you somewhere very far and remote and quiet to tell you what he needs you to do. So in the summer of 2015, seven years after Henry's nightmare, the appeals court finally ruled in his case and struck down the conviction. It's over, you won, Gash told Henry, so no longer are you someone who's committed a crime. The whole thing was nullified. It's like it never happened. And he says, very good. Henry says, praise to God. He's now at Pepperdine and hopes to be an ophthalmologist and go back to Uganda and help those who are sick. Jim Gash says, I would not have become the president of Pepperdine University had I never met Henry. Because when he met Henry, God opened up a door of commitment and sacrifice and selfless giving for the sake of those that we often can overlook or have no knowledge of until we walk through that door that God opens for us and we stand before God and say, God, I will do what you call me to do. I will be committed to your calling in my life. It may be simply going to my neighbor or it may be going to Uganda. 
But that's how you overcome the enemy on the offense of stepping forward boldly, bringing a friend to the Alpha Course, the art of neighboring, of reaching out to those that need Jesus around me, the people at work. It's being on the offense of stepping forward by a step of faith and doing what God has called us to do and not languishing in fear or apathy. We're become vulnerable to the attacks of an enemy that wants to take us out. So God's given us a recipe that shows the disaster of war, but he's also given us a recipe to overcome it and have victory. I invite us into that victory. The blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony to be bold for him, and the sacrificial willingness to go and serve, whatever that may look like for each of us. To help us in that journey, we have the communion tables that are before us here. It's maybe an opportunity as you come to take communion. The blood represented by the cup, the body of Jesus that was born, that fleshly body through Mary, represented by the bread. It's your opportunity to say, Lord, I am willing to dedicate myself to whatever it is you call me to do. I will go where you call me to go. I will do what you call me to do. It's that kind of offensive stepping forward that withstands the enemy's attacks in our lives. We have prayer points on either side, and much as Henry was prayed for, and much as that medical doctor was prayed for, we would love to pray for you as well. So let me pray for us as we conclude our service, as we continue to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and the victory that he can give to each of us. Father, help us now. We know that there is a war that is raging around us. Scripture details that pretty vividly for us. It's hard to understand all of it, Lord. You know that. But one thing we do know, Jesus Christ ultimately will be victorious. But until that second coming of Christ, we know the enemy of this world, the evil one, will do all that he can to take us out. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal weak spots in our own lives so that we can withstand the temptation. And would you give us the victory, give us the power, give us the foresight, give us the wisdom and the knowledge, the perseverance, the selflessness, the sacrifice, to step forward in boldness by faith that you're a God who will work in our lives as well, that we need not fear the enemy. We simply walk in obedience to you. So help us, Lord, as the angelic powers that we celebrate today, we come really to worship the ultimate one, Jesus Christ for all that he has done for us. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.